Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Nature Photographer podcast, brought to you by NAMPA and Wild and Exposed. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dawn Wilson, president of NAMPA, along with the guys here from Wild and Exposed. We also have with us today Clay Bolt, who is a phenomenal photographer, conservationist, and all things bugs. Welcome, Clay. Thanks for joining us today. Why don't we jump right in and talk about how you got started in conservation photography? You know, I've just always been obsessed with with insects and um, also with art. And so throughout my career, those two things have always been my driving passions. And I started working as a conservation photographer probably around 2002, um, starting out working with the Nature Conservancy, photographing sal- salamanders plants that are pretty rare in the Southern Appalachians. I'm originally from South Carolina, and so I was really focused on little things, which I'd always been interested in. And I'd photographed a lot of insects over my career, but it wasn't until around 2013 when I began reading about um, the die-off of honeybees that I began to get interested in bees because, you know, of course, like, here is this golden opportunity as a photographer to try to do something to help help out bees. Um, but as I began to do research, I realized that honeybees are actually not native to North America, actually native to Europe, and they were introduced into North America in the 1600s. And I also found out, uh, surprisingly, that, that honeybees are not as in as much trouble as we, we often think because they're domesticated species similar to, to cattle or chickens. And so you can imagine um, trying to, you know, it's like trying to protect rare birds through constant conservation of chickens like it just doesn't really make any sense but what i learned in that process as well is that worldwide there are 20,000 species of native bee doing all sorts of cool things in the environment and in north america we have over 4,000 species and so i went out i was just fascinated by this and i went out this was around 2013 and i began to photograph the bees that i found in my backyard and i became fascinated with these little tiny bees that were commonly called sweat bees. They're really beautiful. They're, they come in metallic colors. They're striped. They're fast flying. And I wanted to learn more about them. And around 2013, I mean, there were not that many people who were looking at native bees, um, especially as photographers. Um, most people were focused on honeybees. And so I went to Great Smoky Mountains National Park to the Twin Creek Science Center and spoke with Becky Nichols, uh, the park entomologist, and I wanted to see their collection of these sweat bees because I was trying to learn more about them. They're difficult to find identifications from. You can't. It's not like a butterfly where you can pick up a manual and know all the species. Bees are much more difficult because some of the differences are very subtle. And so as I was looking through the collection, Becky showed me this specimen uh, of, of a rusty patch bumblebee, which used to be very common in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And she told me that it hadn't been seen in the park for many years, even though it was once really, really common. And I asked her, well, you know, what's happening? Why is this species going extinct? And she shared with me that she didn't exactly know, but there was there were some rumors that a disease was killing it off. And 
as I mentioned in the film, I guess in the making, I had this epiphany. I was sitting there looking at this bee impelled on a pin in a scientific collection. And I looked across the room and there was a stuffed passenger pigeon, which was at one time the most numerous bird species on earth, or at least one of them, you know, flocks of passenger pigeons would start flying over at, at, at dawn and fly all the way over to the end of the day, till the sunset. They were so massive. And people thought, well, they'll never, ever go extinct. And so people shot them, people took them for granted. And then in 1914, this bird went extinct. And I, I realized that like looking at this bumblebee, that this was another sort of a similar situation. This bumblebee was once extremely common. It was once found from the eastern United States all the way over to the Dakotas and Nebraska. And without people even really paying attention, it was almost extinct. And I, I just knew in that moment that I had to try to do something to um, bring this to the public's attention. Well, you did an excellent job with that. So A couple questions there. Because, well, first of all, I told Don – um, I just returned from a four-day trip into the Black Hills of South Dakota, and I came back from watching these uh, white-breasted nuthatches doing some mating behavior. And I walked back, and I looked down at the license plate of my vehicle, and there was a, a good-sized bee. It had the rust patch on the back, but obviously, I mean, you're talking, what did you say, 20,000 species in the United States? In the world, yeah, in the world, in the or worldwide, mm-hmm. yeah. So to be able to to uh, key one out without any without any knowledge or without a dichotomous key there to help me out, it's tough to say. But how does one then survey and surmise that this population has gone from one point to another in the vast, you know, the vast country that we have? Well. That's a good question. Um, bumblebees, so there's, and there's more to the story, Dawn, uh, but I, I just wanted to pause there to give you guys a chance to ask questions. I mean, the, the simple answer is that, at least in the eastern United States, most bumblebees are fairly easy to tell apart once you look at them for a while. Um, in the U.S., there's around 40. The number's changing slightly due to genetics and genetic research but there's around 45 species in the U.S. So it's a little bit easier in the eastern United States. Once you get into the West, many of the bees look very similar. Um, uh, but to make a long story short, like it's just a matter of spending a lot of time, not, not just looking at fiddle guys, but really looking at the bees in real life because that's how you can really tell the difference. I even find that like looking at specimens um, – that it's sometimes difficult because they just don't ha- they don't look as big when you look at them in a in a museum they're dried out um, so sure. yeah so I can continue to tell this story if you want to yeah absolutely back. so at that point um, I did a little research to try to figure out what was happening with the rusty patch and there's an organization called the Xerces Society for Invertebrate Conservation it's based out of Portland Oregon it's a uh, one of the world's first organizations that focuses on um, trying to conserve invertebrates. And they had basically sued, not basically, they had sued the Fish and Wildlife Service to try to help move the listing along. Because one of the things I've learned through working with conservation is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there's so many demands to protect species because there's a lot going on. There's so many species that are not doing well. 
they're underfunded or they have been underfunded. There are all these things that sometimes the lawsuits, what's necessary to allow them to prioritize what should be listed. But how the listing process works is once a group of scientists or experts an analyze the data, they, they realize that there are trends where these species are, are starting to go extinct. And the reason people know that is because scientists are out in the field, biologists are surveying all Tourette species range <clears throat> to see, you know, how many they're finding of a certain species. And they do different methods of collection. Um, but once those numbers really start to drop, it becomes known that like, hey, something bad is happening here. And, and currently we're in a situation right now worldwide where it's estimated that um, over the next few decades, over 40 percent of the world's insect populations are expected to go extinct, which is a whole different thing that we can talk about. But it's a very serious situation that we find ourselves in. So anyway, biologists, experts had analyzed all of the data on the rusty patch bumblebee and realized that over the last, the 15 years, over 15 years, it had declined nearly 90%. So it used to be found, again, from the eastern United States all the way over to the Dakotas and Nebraska. At that point, it was only found, like, you could only find it in the upper Midwest. It had shrunk in that, you know, the range had shrunk in that much. And so the Xerces Society took this information to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And when you bring this information to the Fish and Wildlife Service, they have to do what's called a 90-day finding, which is basically you take this information, the Fish and Wildlife Service reviews it, and within 90 days they're supposed to get back to the applicant and say, yes, this species warrants being listed or no. And so when I found out about the rescue patch, it had been over 900 days since that initial application had been submitted to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And I just thought... Yeah, it's a lot. Um, so I knew that this bee needed a PR campaign, essentially. And so I took that opportunity to, I decided I wanted to develop a film that could be used as a, um, a uh, PR campaign, basically, for this bee. And there's more to the story, but I want to give you guys a chance to jump in if you have questions. So you work for the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, was this all done in, in conjunction with them, or was that done before your, your time there, or in addition to Xerxes? And I'm trying to get the, the dynamics around the, the team that was involved in this. So I, once I really got into making the film, I had joined World Wildlife Fund, but this film was actually um, a project that I started prior to that, joining WWF. So... Um, I was partnering with Xerces Society as well as um, Endangered Species Chocolate was one of our sponsors. And I was working with a production company called Day's Edge Productions, whom I've worked with on a lot of different um, projects over the years. Um, and so we, we basically approached Xerces and said, hey, we want to help you figure out a way to, to move this thing forward. And um, they had never really produced a film before that. There was a small film that they sort of helped promote, but they'd never really produced a film. So it took some convincing, but we were able to get them on board and raise some funding to produce the film, which was great. And um, from there, basically, I just spent probably about eight weeks um, shooting in various locations shooting in the southeast, looking at historic locations. There was one place in Virginia, a place called Sky Meadows, where one single bumblebee had been found. And then primarily in Madison, Wisconsin, and Illinois. And then I also spent some time in Minnesota looking for the rusty patched 
And that was used basically to produce this film. After the film was released, we did a few key things. One was um, I basically went on a speaking tour. Um, I presented the film for the first time at National Geographic headquarters in D.C. for a, a Washington, D.C. initiative to help protect pollinators. I was able to speak at a congressional briefing on Capitol Hill, which was a really pivotal moment, I think, for the, for the project. And the other thing that we were able to do is work with change.org. Uh, to create a petition. And my goal was to raise as many signatures as possible to, to directly deliver to the Fish and Wildlife Service to show them that there was public support and pressure to protect the species. And so the combination of all of those things basically was what we used to help move the ball forward. And ultimately that led to the, um, the protection of the bee. And it became the first species to be added to the endangered species, first species of native North American bee to be added to the endangered species list in 2017. And what's the, its status now in regards to, like, it, will there be an evaluation period? Or what is that process for an evaluation period to keep it on the endangered species list? And what are kind of the next steps here? Well, unfortunately, one of the provisions that come with uh, a listing is that the Fish and Wildlife Service is supposed to create um, habitat uh, for the species and come up with a conservation plan. So that has not happened yet. And so unfortunately, lawsuits continue. Um, we're in a situation where the government is more friendly to conservation efforts. So I, I'm hopeful that <clears throat> things will go forward. But um, yeah, it still needs that habitat. One of the reasons that I didn't get into that one of the primary reasons other than habitat loss and pesticides that the species is going extinct is that um, USDA APHIS is over what's called, well, let me back up. The reason that the species is thought to be going extinct is because in the early 80s, there were a group of people here in the U.S. who wanted to start a commercial bumblebee industry similar to what people do with, bum, with honeybees, where they raise colonies of bees and they use them to, for pollinating. And bumblebees are really great for pollinating um, things like tomatoes, because they have a special technique they use called sonication or buzz pollination, where they can unhinge their wings from their flight muscles and vibrate their body. And that causes pollen to fall down from blueberries and cranberries and tomatoes and things like that. And um, so in Europe, around the early 80s, there were a group of people who were breeding bumblebees for commercial purposes, but we didn't have the infrastructure here in the U.S. And so North American bees were shipped to Europe. They were raised on honey, raised on pollen that was collected by European honeybees. They were housed in facilities next to European bumblebees. And once they had the numbers that they needed, those were shipped back to North America. And some of those bees ended up escaping into the environment with a with a microsporidian pathogen called Nosema bombi that has devastated populations of several species of bees. In fact, the IUCN bumblebee specialist group suggest that one out of every four species of North American bumblebee is at risk of extinction. This is really a serious situation that we find ourselves in. And so APHIS controls and regulates where commercial bumblebees can be shipped. So in addition to not having super tight regulations on maybe the, the way that the, the, the colonies are constructed, they're, they are not regulating if a bee that's native to the eastern United States could be shipped to the western United States. And so that's one of the big things that needs to happen and that's one of the things that I hope to happen in the near future is that there are some regulations that come from APHIS that say you can't ship bees outside of their range. So that's a long-winded way of saying that while this bee is protected, 
there's a lot of work to be done. And I think the some really positive things that have come from the listing is that number one, people are paying a lot more attention to bumblebees. There are a lot of citizen science efforts that are happening, and especially in the upper Midwest, where people are looking for bumblebees in their backyard. They're planting a lot more habitat in their backyards. Those things are really, I think, adding up, you know, providing a pesticide-free environment for these bumblebees. Um, but the other interesting thing that's happened is that they were able, people were able to find more of these bumblebees in West Virginia and Virginia, and we don't know exactly why there are these um, isolated populations, but because that species had endangered species protection, it was actually able to block and ultimately into the cast, lead to the cancellation of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which was running through George Washington National um, Forest. It would have destroyed habitat for a lot of species. And so the listing is having some really positive ripple, effect, ripple effects for other species. And we just hope that in time that some of these other missing pieces come into, come into play. But there's a lot of work to be done. So it's a very early stages. I guess you could say that, yeah. Even though it would sound like being listed as an endangered species would kind of be the, the you know, kind of the, the pinnacle of where you want to get to. It really is only the beginning of the challenge. That's true. I mean, I always tell people that conservation is not like a light switch. You know, you don't switch it on and then something's immediately protected. That's really when the work begins. And one of the things that I, I don't think I realized early in my career is that really taking something off of the endangered species list is ultimately the goal. It doesn't sound as um, sexy, but it's the goal. That's what I was going to say. Having a recovered population would be the pinnacle. And, you know, we've seen we've seen a lot of things, good things happen in conservation in, in the U.S., but it's been like with the, the whooping crane, California condor, species like that. They're a little bit larger. Um, dealing with an insect, it's got to be a lot more difficult to even come up with regulation, to come up with what a, what a recovered species or recovered population looks like. How do you map that out? I think that's a very good question, and I think that's a really good point. I, one of the things that the Fish and Wildlife Service told me is that this is one of the first times that they've listed anything that's regularly found not in a reserve or something like that or some faraway place. And I think that has its pluses and minuses. I mean, I think on the obviously on the minus side, it's a lot harder to corral the species, so to speak. You know, it's not in the Arctic or somewhere that people are not going. I mean, this is in suburban neighborhoods in Chicago mm -hmm. and places like that. But on the other side, the good thing is, is that everyday people can actually have a really big impact on the future of the species. So doing things like not spraying pesticides, there was a, a I think it's in Minneapolis, the city is now paying people to dig up their lawns and plant native prairie in part because of the rusty patch bumblebee. So there are like really creative things that people are starting to do. Um, one thing I've started here in my own town just this week, actually, in Livingston, Montana, is something called No Mow May. I got the city to support it. So in the month of May, you know, we're trying to get people not to mow their lawns, cities dedicating spaces to provide ha habitat for these um, queen bumblebees as they come out. So, you know, there's different ways to look at it. Ultimately, my philosophy with conservation is that it has to be a blended model because, Yes, in many cases we do need government regulation to stop 
or to help ban certain pesticides, which are not only bad for insects, but for lots of other things. Um, Neonix is a popular one that people know about, but there are a lot of different chemicals that we're pumping into the environment that are really bad for people as well. On the other hand, though, I really love the idea that, that people can feel empowered to actually do something, because I think one of the struggles we have with climate change and and you know just greenhouse gases and all these other things that we deal with is that people... I believe, feel paralyzed because they don't know how to impact. And then if they do, say you drive your car less or you fly less or you recycle or all these things, it's really hard to see the the impact of that at the end of the day. I mean, you know that you're contributing to something good. But when I plant wildflowers in my garden and I see more and more bees year over year, I know that I am making a difference. And I, I like to think of my backyard as a, a miniature, even though it's a pretty small yard, as a miniature wildlife reserve with literally millions of organisms living in that backyard. And so as the caretaker of that space, I have, I have can make an impact that I can see. I like that idea. It just made me think, you know, same thing. I don't, I don't even really have a yard. I just have a deck. We have a condo here, but we do what we can just to, you know, have flowers out there and have potted things and, you know, encourage birds to come in and, you know, it's the little things that we, you know, if each person can do a little bit, it kind of starts to, build into a, a larger community effort. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I I really believe that um, environmentally speaking, we got ourselves in this mess, not because I think people are evil or anything like that. It's just people wanted to make their life a little better and lives a little better. And they did one thing and then that added up, but it's compounded, you know, as more people do more and more things. I mean, certainly there there's greed and there's all these other things, but I think a lot of it just happened because people are trying to improve their lives through little steps. And I think we get back to that place of making the world a bit better for nature by a lot of little actions adding up to a lot. Um, so yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. So I feel like the conversation's getting a little bit heavy <laughs> and we have so much to ask you. One of the things I, there was a fun story I heard you say you give um, in a presentation you gave at summit, which is Nampa's biannual conference. Um, I think it was, I want to say it was in 2000, it might've actually been 2017. You were talking about being on SNL. You should <laughs> tell us about that. The, I don't think Ron and Ron and Mark are even familiar with what this is. So what is they might SNL? Get oh, yep. I'm sorry. Saturday Night Live. I'm joking. Just <laughs> <laughs> checking. Uh, yeah. So it was pretty amazing. After... <laughs> After we found out that the Rusty Patch was going to be listed, it was in the New York Times, it was everywhere. I was watching Saturday Night Live, and during a weekend update, Michael Che was talking about the bumblebee being listed on the endangered species list, and he made this really funny joke about, um, imagine being the guy that's on your first date, and you tell your date, hey, I am the guy who had dedicated my entire life to protecting the bumblebee, and he showed this hilarious picture of of Michelle Obama going, hmm. And literally, that was me on my first date with my fiance. I was like telling her about the Rusty Patch Bumblebee and all of this stuff. And so that was a super surreal moment because I had no idea that it was going to happen. And what was so bizarre to me is that, like, I don't know, like to get something on the endangered species list is one thing, but then to get people talking about bees in a different way, especially in popular media like that, I felt like somehow I had done something right. Big success. Well, I think it's a testament to your communication skills too. 
yeah, maybe so. I'm not sure, but certainly my obsession. <laughs> now, that's not the only species of bee, though, that you have either discovered or documented a decline in. There's also a species overseas, correct? That's correct, yeah. Um, so basically, there well, there's a species of bee called Wallace's giant bee, and it was first discovered in the late 1800s by an explorer named Alfred Russell Wallace. He was a British insect collector and entomologist. And um, he was uh, also the co-creator of the, or developer of the theory of evolution with Darwin. And Wallace discovered this, this crazy bee. He wasn't exactly sure what it was. In fact, he described it as a giant wasp-like insect with mandibles, like a stag beetle. It's a very bizarre looking thing. It's about the size of my thumb. And it was seen once in the late 1800s, and then it wasn't seen again until 1981 by a um, USGA, I'm sorry, University of Georgia grad student named Adam Messer. And they live in this place called the North Malakus or North Malaku, which is a, a very remote group of islands to the northwest of Papua New Guinea. So it's very isolated. And on islands, you know, there's several things that happen. Mammals tend to get smaller, reptiles tend to get bigger, and insects oftentimes will get bigger as well. Um, and certainly it's true with this insect. So the species was thought to be lost to science, maybe extinct after Messer discovered it in the early 80s. It hadn't been seen since until a specimen showed up on eBay, I think in 2018. And I'd already been looking at looking into going and trying to just rediscover the species um, or see if I could find it. But once it sold on eBay for um, several thousand dollars, um, I was really concerned that collectors would start taking as many as they could and selling this, especially from the part of the world that it was sold. It's a, a part of the world that $9,000 U.S. goes a really long way. So my friend Eli Wyman and I had done tons of research trying to figure out exactly where the species might be located. And in Messer's 19... 83 paper about his discovery in 81, there was only one GPS coordinate, and that was placed in the middle of the ocean. And so <laughs> we couldn't get in touch with Messer. We knew that the bee wasn't really in the ocean, but it took a lot of detective work, and a lot of the credit goes to Eli to try to figure out exactly where we might find this bee again. And so the goal was to go out. I wanted to be the first person to photograph it and film it, even more importantly, to, to show people an image of a living Wallace's giant bee to show them video, to let them hear how the wings sounded, those kinds of things. And so um, in January of 2019, after years of planning, we were able to go over and um, spend several weeks searching for it in lowland rainforest in Indonesia. And it was, it was amazing to, to literally walk in the footsteps of where Wallace had been um, that many years before looking for this insect. And when we got to the village, we met with the village chief. Um, we met you know, members of the community. We were able to find some of the original guides who had been there with Messer. And most people had not seen the bee before. In fact, the original guides were the only ones who had seen it. So at first I thought, well, we're going to go over there and everybody's going to know where it's at. It's going to be super easy to find. But that wasn't the case. The bees nest in arboreal termite mounds, active termite mounds. So I thought, okay, 
the only way we're going to be able to find this bee is probably spend a lot of time looking at nest and just hoping that we see it. And so we got there. We're we're on one of the larger islands in North Malaku, and we thought we saw it several times, and it ended up being a large beetle or a closely related species. And you know, people thought we were crazy that we'd flown around the world to look for a bee. <clears throat> they just couldn't wrap their heads around it. But um, after a couple of weeks of looking at nest day after day, on our way back to the village, before we moved on to the next spot, um, our guide, Ishwan Majud, saw a, a, a nest, a termite mound nest, in a, a jackfruit tree about eight feet off the ground. And I was starving. It was lunchtime. We'd been in the field like all day. And we almost didn't look, but... He, you know, he climbed up the tree anyway, and he looked in and he screamed snake. And um, he was terrified. Each one is very afraid of snakes. He's not been happy with me that I've told everyone in the world that he's afraid of snakes, but <laughs> he loves nature, but he's afraid of snakes. And in, in, in that part of the world, it's somewhat justifiable because there are certainly a lot of venomous snakes. Um, but anyway, so he jumped down. And so um, I climbed up and looked in the nest and... I couldn't believe my eyes that there was a female giant bee inside the nest using those giant, they had these giant mandibles and she was using it to spread tree resin around the inside of the nest, which is how she keeps the termites from coming into her nest. And I just couldn't believe it. The, the elation that I felt, um, imagine being the first person to, to get a, a photograph and video of a species is, is something I'll never forget. So we documented it. I got the shot that I wanted of the bee flying around the nest. I wanted to show it not just as a specimen again, but a living, breathing bee. Um, we came back to the village. We were elated. And then these guys show up on um, motorcycles um, and I just felt that something was wrong. These are people that I hadn't seen in the village. They looked different. They dressed differently. So I took my memory cards and quickly hid them. Now, I should say that Indonesia is, can be a difficult place to work in, depending on where you're at. There have been a lot of people who have gone to Indonesia. Well, first of all, the places we were at since the 1400s was the center of the spice trade. So non-Indonesian people have been coming there for a long time and exploiting there's a long history of their resources being exploited. And in recent years, there have been people who have gone there to, to smuggle out orchids or spiders and different things for the pet trade, you know, and, and of course that's frowned upon. Um, but we actually tried really hard to, to find a Indonesian collaborator. We, you know, like I said, we were very open about it with the villagers that we were meeting with. But one of the things that got kind of caused a problem is that when Adam Messer and his assistant Paul Taylor were there in the 1980s, Paul Taylor told the villagers that there's something really special living in your forest, and someday people are going to come back and try to try to see it. So take good care of your forest. Well, he was talking about, at least I believe, he was talking about the bee, but the villagers took that to mean gold because there are, a lot, there are a lot of mining operations there in Indonesia. Australians have mines there. Other companies have these mining operations. And, it, and they're seen as basically, you know, taking advantage of Indonesians' wealth and taking it away to somewhere else. 
So rumor had started to spread apparently that we were there from an Australia. There were there were uh, there was a couple of Australians on our crew and then two Americans, and rumors had started to spread that we were there uh, looking for mining opportunities. So the people that had showed up on the motorcycle were from um, the Indonesian Secret Service, and suddenly these guys come in and they're interrogating us. And for over an hour, they asked us questions. They took photos of our passports. One guy said to me, um, you have to be careful because tourists sometimes end up in the ocean and drown. We wouldn't want that to happen. And so I'm thinking, well, I've most had the, one of the most amazing moments in my life, and I am also may never leave to, uh, live to see my kids again. And uh, so the people fortunately left. And we were able to basically go on to another location and then leave the country. And, boy, that was a huge relief. So after we came back in February 2019, um, we released the story. And it was huge, huge news. It truly went viral. Um, it was the number one story on the BBC, all the BBC channels that day. I was interviewed by Time and National Geographic. And, I mean, it was just truly everywhere. We had 2.2 billion media hits within the first couple of months of the story coming out. That was great because I was bringing so much attention to the bee. But the problem was is that um, there were some entomologists there in Indonesia, or at least one guy in particular, he was jealous. I mean, essentially, he was jealous. And he told a lot of stories about me, and particularly me because I was a photographer that weren't true. So I was labeled a biopirate in the Indonesian media. Um, there were threats to, to tremendous lawsuits. I was going to be banned from Indonesia. If I ever came back, I was going to be arrested. Someone showed my passport on Indonesian TV. Um, it was a pretty serious situation. And so I had to do a lot of work, basically, to clear my name, show trails where I had tried to like do X, Y, and Z, that we had not collected a sample, all of this kinds of stuff. The good side of that is it created a dialogue which I was able to get a letter from the Indonesian government, number one, clearing my name, but number two, to tell people not to collect the species. And I also worked with an organization called Traffic, which deals with wildlife trafficking, to ban the sale of this insect on eBay, Facebook, all the major um, outlets, Instagram, to provide protections. And then I also was able to find some provisions through some assistance in Indonesian law that meant that it was illegal to collect this insect. So, it was a very rough ride for a while, but at the end of the day, um, the cool thing is, is that Indonesian biologists are now starting to find more of the nest, and now that it has so much attention, they're really proud of the species, which is a, a very different way of trying to conserve something, but I, my gamble paid off ultimately in the end that, I, that people are now very interested in it. Um, so it's just really interesting how you can go about conservation in different ways, essentially. That's interesting. The, you know, the, the pride that kind of, you know, we talk about pride sometimes being a sin has actually been a beneficial outcome from this. Yeah, they, they felt some sense of ownership, I think, for the insect and realized that maybe something that they had taken for granted or people had not really noticed was super valuable in other people's eyes. So you have to use psychology sometimes, I suppose, or, or photos can, it can speak volumes at times, I guess you could say. Well, and that's become a big part of just conservation in general of, you know, how do you, 
You know, there, there are so many studies out there that show that if you talk about it negatively or if you try to scare people into doing things, it doesn't work. It's it's got to be a, you know a more of a positive aspect, and this I think kind of epitomizes that whole concept. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. That you can only make people afraid so much, or you can only you know like worry only goes so far. I think because ultimately. People have to take care of their families, they have their everyday job, they have all these things they have to do. And so I feel like, you know, positive stories oftentimes help a lot. I'm not saying they're the only way to do conservation, but I think positive stories can be really powerful. And I also think giving people small actions that they can do, which add up to a lot, is is super important. And I've sort of come around to the idea that, you know, I think at one point I was a bit naive that I thought that I could get all of my all of the people in my audiences to love nature as much as I do or love insects as much as I do. Now I'm sort of like, can we just get to a point where it's a live and live, let live mentality? Like you don't have to sort of think about like, I don't know, some random organ in your body, maybe, I don't know, your kidneys, right? Like, you know, your kidneys are important, but you don't hear people saying, I just love my kidneys. Like, you know that it does something important for your body. And I kind of think of like insects, all the things that insects do, like everyone's not going to be geeking out over a, um, a blister beetle or a, or a wasp. But that's okay as long as they go, yeah, it's kind of weird, but I know it does something really important for our world. So that's sort of my new, <laughs> my new strategy. I think that's, a str- that's the strategy you have to take with insects is educate people on the benefit because there's, you know, there's all the the fears of, of different species, which are unwarranted for the most part. Um, well, almost all are unwarranted. Mm-hmm. However, there's just that innate fear because someone got stung by a wasp and now everything that looks similar is evil. So that's, you know, that's something that you have to overcome. But then the education piece I think, and what, uh, Pixar, I believe, did the movie Bees. And I think that was, uh, you know, it was fictional, but it was a solid shot at educating just a little bit of the benefit of species that go largely unknown otherwise. Yeah, I feel like if I can help somebody just take a second glance or, you know, pause before they squash a spider in their house you know like it's funny what what storytelling and photography and filmmaking can do to just make people take that little pause and if you can make them take a pause then maybe they reconsider what they're doing you know and i and i think a lot of patience is required because you're absolutely right you know like even when i was a kid i I had this moment at my friend's house where I ran through all these spider webs in the woods and I was freaking out and I was arachnophobic for a really long time because of that. It took a lot of work for me to like sort of like steel myself against the idea that everything was out to get me. But people often don't do that. And so mm-hmm. I have to be understanding of that. I can't just expect people to switch that off um, just because I want them to. Yes, this is a great audience with Nampa to be talking about this because everybody involved loves nature and the diversity in entomology and insects really is, I mean, I've said this before on the podcast, I studied wildlife biology, but almost finished a minor in entomology just because I was so enthralled with the diversity of 
of life on this planet with, with insects even. It's just mind-blowing. So what I was wondering was, given your intimate knowledge of pollinators and, you know, the dire concerns of pollinators across North America and the world, what would you recommend that people can do? Like you were talking about with the yard or what, what can be done to rehabilitate or what would you plant? What flowers would you plant? What advice would you give to the average listener that they could start doing to help pollinators? I think that's a really great question, and thanks for asking that. I mean, so it, it might sound super basic, but it kind of is. Um, the first thing is, you know, just like us, bees need a, a varied diet. They need food throughout the season. And so I always recommend that people plant wildflowers or flowers that are native to the region where they live. Um, Plant a mix of flowers that bloom all the way from early spring, like when those queen bumblebees are out, all the way into fall. So planting things like goldenrods that are blooming, you know, all the way into autumn. Because there are bees that come out in different times of the year. There are bees that specialize like in sunflowers in late summer. Um, there are other generalist species like bumblebees that will fly all season. But having that mix of different types of food is really important. Instead of going to a big box store and buying a couple of plants that just bloom at the height of summer, and then that's it. Um, because one reason that we're so reliant upon honeybees is that we grow our crops in monoculture. So all those things bloom at once, like almonds. They all bloom at once. There's lots of food for bees. And then once they stop blooming, there's nothing for bees. And so that's why we have to ship bees around. Whereas with a mix of plants, um, it makes a, makes a huge difference. So you can always talk to your local extension service uh, to get advice on which plants to plant. But if you don't have the time to do that, if you can just, just at least plant a mix of flowers in your yard, you're going to have bees showing up. They really do show up pretty quickly. The next thing is um, try to avoid pesticides in your garden, which sounds like a no-brainer, but I mean, it, it's something that people often don't think about. If they're not actually spraying the insect, they think it's okay. But for example, like neonics, you don't, if you buy a plant or you plant seeds that are not organic, for example, and they have neonics on them, neonics are systemic pesticides, which means that they become part of the entire plant. Even the pollen and nectar become toxic. And as long as that plant's alive, it's going to be toxic. So, you know, trying to, to, to source sustainably, uh, uh, produce seeds is really good. I mean, but I always say like, let's keep it simple to start with. Just plant, plant flowers. Don't spray pesticides. And the third thing you really need to do is try to give your, your insects a place to live. So for example, uh, leaving some edges of your yard a little bit messy if you can. I mean, granted, like you were saying, Don, you're, you might, you're in an apartment or, or a condo. It's more difficult to, to do that. But people that have yards, you know, like Maybe just leave a little pile of leaves in the backyard or um, the edges a little bit messy. And that will, that will allow for places for those insects and those bees to live. The other thing that you can do that's a little bit more techy is that there are a lot of really great citizen science projects. For example, iNaturalist. There's also an app called Seek, it's E-E-K, that are free. And you can photograph anything you see in your yard. You can photograph every bee. And those insects... Uh, those photos go into a national database or an international database that scientists are actively using to track populations of things like the rusty patch bumblebee. And, and these smartphones that we have are bad in a lot of ways because we spend so much time scrolling, but they're also really important tools for conservation these days. Um, so, you know, 
get involved in one of these free programs like iNaturalist, it's cool because you're basically building a field guide of all your observations, but that data can also be used to help protect the species that you're seeing. Um, so those are the things that I would advise. It's, you know, so in some ways you can think of it as those are the things we need as well, food, shelter, and a healthy environment. With the wildflowers seeds, so, sorry, Ron. Um, oh, you're fine. When we purchased our rural property a couple of decades ago here, I bought a container of mixed wildflower seeds with the excitement of having this plethora of color all along the forest edge, edge of the lawn. But they weren't, it, from what I researched back then, it could have changed since, they weren't all native. So I never deployed them. So I just, to go a little bit further, for people, I mean, you can get any kind of flower, I suppose, at greenhouses and Perennials, to me, have always been a go-to because it's a one-and-done. If it's a successful plant that's from that area, it will emerge annual every year. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and so having a variety of perennials. But was, is there anything that you would suggest as far as where people are the strategy to source these flowers and for food that way? Would it be an idea just to go down the road and perhaps source some from a conservation area where it was permitted and plant them and relocate them that way or or just i guess it's a matter i'm just saying of being cautious with the seed that's dispersed to make sure it's something that should be there yeah i i would recommend a couple of different strategies i mean one thing is that in most areas these days there are good plant nurseries that specialize in natives and i would just go talk to the owner of that nursery and i think you could get really good quality plants i i sort of advise people from take, I mean, of course, you wouldn't want to dig up plants in a conservation area, but even sometimes collecting seeds, depending on the plant, can be um, you're maybe not sure how you're impacting what's happening. So I, I always recommend that. There are also a lot of distributors online, like American Meadows is one that I use um, that sells regionally appropriate uh, packages of seeds. So if you're in the southeast, you can. I went to the southeastern collection, and these are like sustainably sourced seeds you know, they're organic and all those kinds of things. And you pay a little bit more, but in the long run, you know that if you're doing it for the insects, if you're doing it for, for, for nature, paying a little bit more is just means that you're going to mean that you're going to have more of those things that you're actually planting for. So it's worth the money if you can afford it. Um, and perennials are great. And then there are also a lot of wildflowers that are vigorous reseeders. So I try to, I, I always recommend that it's sometimes good to get started with clumps of Anchor plants, if you will, especially if you're in a smaller place, you know, plant some anchors and then try seeds around that. And that gives you a good sort of instant gratification, but also a good mix of things that might be coming back and reseeding season after season. That's great. Yeah, I didn't. So, I didn't mean to dig up conservation areas. Like I, no, I'm I glad you point. I'm glad you pointed that out. I was thinking here where we are. There's a lot of crown public land. So would you simply, if it's half an hour away and it's something that's compatible for the habitat would be something you could take a small portion, reintroduce. Wasn't trying to encourage that, but I'm glad you caught it. I was like, whoa, good. Ron. Well, I was just going to say, if you start to receive mail from Wyoming, I'm going to have a sign in my, my uh, yard. This yard is being turned back over to nature, courtesy of Clay Bolt. <laughs> I would support that. And the Rusty Patch Bumblebee Recovery Program. Well, so my neighbors may be upset with the. Uh... <laughs> well, they might call you on that because there's no rusty patch bumblebees in Wyoming. But <laughs> just put bumblebee and you'll be covered. There's a bunch of bumblebees there. You go. There. there you yeah. go. 
I always like, I know in Colorado, we have the same issue that it's just, you see so many of these developments and they have, you know, Kentucky bluegrass and it's just sprinklers going and it's so dry out here that it's just, can't we come up with a better solution and some of these HOA developments than, you know, pretty green lawns of, you know, encourage the, you know, xeriscaping or encourage the native plants or something. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, it boggles my mind. I mean, why people are so obsessed with the lawn. And, you know, it's like people complain about the mowing and stuff. And I told somebody the other day, it's like, I'm lazy by nature and lazy for nature. And it all works out. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I don't have to mow that much. And all the things that I want to photograph show up because I'm not, you know, cutting down their habitat. Lazy is not one term I would use. <laughs> use your name and that, that word in one sentence together. So. Well, I said by nature. Uh, <laughs> I think I'd rather sit around sometimes, but somehow I don't do that. Yeah. No, I don't see you sitting around too much. It's a great slogan. Actually, it's catchy. <laughs> Speaking of that, you have another, kind of another project that you're working on. Um, you were recently awarded the Philip Hyde grant through NAMPA, which is one of the grants that, we, that NAMPA provides through our foundation. And you were recently talking about some of the projects that you were doing with that funding. But I, I didn't quite know what your goal was, what specific project was. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've been doing up in the Montana and Wyoming border area and then what kind of goals you have out of that. Yeah. So I typically don't work very much on climate change related stories because I, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's difficult to help people understand what they could potentially do. But I had become really interested in the idea of, of species that are um, basically being pushed to the edge of the range because of climate change. And so you have a lot of species of bumblebee. Montana has the most species of bumblebee of any state. Wyoming's very close, um, <laughs> but I think we have the most. And part of it is because of the topography of Montana. And so we have a lot of species that live on what would be called a sky island, basically, these sort of mountaintop alpine habitats and and they're only able to survive there because the temperatures are so cold and they, they specialize in these alpine plants but as the temperatures warm up you know they're being basically there's nowhere for them to go as the temperatures rise species that are lower areas on the mountains are being pushed up and the ones on the top just ultimately have nowhere to go and either they adapt or they they go extinct and so sometimes in my work what i've been trying to do is is bear witness to things that are happening like i don't really know what the solution is, but I, I've been interested in the idea that, like, how do people respond to the idea that, that climate change is impacting bumblebees, for example? You know, like, the monarch butter, butterfly is a species that is so, well, unfortunately, it's it's been proposed for listing on the Endangered Species Act as well. You can believe that. But, like, people really have done a lot of work to try to protect the monarch because it there's something about it that people really just, they, they, it's attractive to people. And I've been thinking about this idea that, you know, could bumblebees sort of be a, put a different face uh, rather than the polar bear, I mean, uh, put a different kind of face on, on climate change. So I've been working on this story, uh, looking at these high alpine species and, and the impacts of climate change on them. The other way that I've been using this Philip Hyde grant funding, which has been great, um, is I'm working on a, uh, a guide to all of the bumblebees of all of the Americas, which has never been done. So I'm pretty close to having all of the North American species photographed, um, including a really rare bumblebee, Suckley's bumblebee, that I was able to find um, in the Beartooth Range in Montana. 
this past summer. Um, but in addition to that, I'm going to be going through Mexico, Central, and South America, documenting um, the species found there as well. So the Philip Hyde grant um, was a great kickoff to this this project, and uh, spent a lot of time in the Beartooth this past summer photographing some really interesting high-altitude bumblebees, uh, really cool species that only come out for a few weeks because the winter, uh, sort of the spring and summer is compressed into like four or five weeks up there. It's pretty high. It's around 10,000 feet altitude. Yeah, they do have a sh very, very short season. So things don't, don't get tall. They don't get big. They tend to stay brown for a long period of time. Yeah. The only thing that gets big, I guess, are the mammals in this part of the world. But the insects definitely don't. <laughs> so, what are you know beyond that? What are some of the other projects that you have that you have going on? What what else have do you kind of have on the horizon that you're looking at accomplishing? Well, one thing I've really um, I referenced this earlier, but I live in a great little town, a very small town, seven less than seven thousand or around seven thousand people. Um, called Livingston, Montana. It's right on the Yellowstone River, um, sort of at the gateway to Paradise Valley in Yellowstone. And we have some really rare species of bumblebees and other insects here in our town. You know, we're known for the large megafauna, but, but we also have some really cool things here in this town. And so the pandemic um, has really, one of the things I think I hear from a lot of people is that pandemic has made them reassess where they live and sort of pay more attention and certainly I'm no exception to that. And so I've got involved with our Parks and Trail Committee, and I'm working towards getting a what's called a B City USA designation for our town, which means that basically working with the city of Livingston to create pollinator-friendly corridors through the town, which helps songbirds, which helps mammals, which helps a lot of different things. So that number one, you know, the species that are that are found here, like the western bumblebee, which is unfortunately a relative of Rusty Patch, which is doing really poorly out here in the West. Um, I want to create habitat for it because we do have it here in our town and you do have Western Bumblebee in, in Wyoming um, and hopefully help it from declining anymore. And so we just started, we we're one of the first cities in the U.S. to have a city supported Nomo May, um, which is basically, as I was mentioning, the city um, designates certain areas that will not be mowed. Um, and then also supported banners and signs throughout the town, sort of bringing awareness to this. So I'm really excited to do some projects that are just sort of under the radar, quiet here in my own town, because it's just a nice way to get involved with the community. I like that idea of having an organized program like that. I know here in Estes Park, we have, you know, there, there are a lot of properties that kind of go the same way. They keep them very native, partly because it's just, it's a little bit easier. We have a lot of wildlife that just kind of roams town. And so people just find it, you know, if I'm going to live in the mountains, I want to enjoy being in the mountains and I don't want to have to cut Absolutely. my lawn. And, you know, on top of it, it's just a gravelly soil. We don't have very good soil up here either. But I like that idea of having a little bit more of a structured program around it to encourage others to, you know, maybe not only just not mow, but also like, like we've been talking about plant things that could, you know, kind of germinate into something larger. Yeah, and I think one thing that excites me is that, you know, if you put something out into the public's eye, I mean, you know, oftentimes I think people are afraid to get a negative response. 
But a negative response is okay. I mean, what you don't want is no response, right? You want to create a dialogue and you want people to start talking about things. And so I think one thing I've seen, even in the few days that this is publicized and officially launched over the weekend, is that there's, like on our local Facebook group for our town, like there's a lot of conversation, mostly positive, but there's some negative comments or some people made comments that uh, were based on not knowing much about bees. And so I was able to go in there very politely and say, actually, you might be surprised to hear this. And in general, there's been a lot of positive responses. And so now I've been asked to give two talks this week about it here in town. And, um, you know, people are asking questions. So I think if I could give anyone advice about how to do conservationist work, work, it's like look in your own backyard, essentially. Like there are so many opportunities to protect spaces that would never make it into a calendar, but they are really important for wildlife. And, um, you know, you, you may not get on National Geographic for protecting it, but like at the end of the day, what's the ultimate goal? Is it to, to publicize yourself or is it to, to uh, help nature? And maybe it's a bit of both at the end of the day, if this is your career. But I also feel like a lot of people are just desperate to make a difference. And, you know, don't go chasing all the, uh, you know, the species that everybody else is photographing. It's one of the great things about insects. They really need help. And, there's so, so, so many stories to tell and so many species that have never even been photographed well. I mean, you could spend your whole life becoming an expert on a certain group of insects or rediscovering discovering new species. I mean, in the recent years, new species have been discovered in New York City. And you know how many people are there. I mean, so there's so much opportunity for um, to do cool work. And if I'm not mistaken, there's more diversity in the insect world than any other class of animals isn't there yeah well at least in, in, in general yeah there's a million described insects in the world and there's probably there could be as many as two more million or more than that waiting to be described because a lot of them are very cryptic or you know small populations i mean there's just so much opportunity yeah. discovery so yeah, clay we kind of dove we dove right into the conservation aspect of your work but we kind of glossed over the photography portion if you look on your website you've done a lot of work not only with the bumblebees but also in central america with the uh, amphibians and uh reptiles and amphibians down there how did you get your start in photography and when did you start um getting involved with nampa so i i've always as i mentioned at one point i i've always been uh, artistic and um, you know, studied art in school and I was always drawing nature and those kinds of things but I ended up getting a degree in graphic design and got pretty burned out working in advertising pretty quickly so I graduated in 98 and then started working around 2000 in advertising and I just didn't didn't love it but I didn't have a lot of time because I was so busy to to work on paintings right I just felt impatient with that process that I just couldn't do it like I used to. And so in 2001, um, I took a trip to Australia and brought along this old Pentax K1000 camera that I had used in college. Terrible. It didn't work very well. It was broken. But I just I was like, I just want to take photos. And I made a lot of really terrible photos on that trip. But a love of photography was born. And that was back when I was shooting slide film. And I remember coming back from Australia and I was just so like 
jazzed about nature. Like that's the other thing that happened is that trip really rekindled my love of nature. And I remember looking out the back, looking into my backyard from my kitchen window and a cardinal landed on a shrub in my backyard. And it was like, I'd never seen a cardinal before that moment because I'd been looking at all of these parrots and things in Australia. And like my mind was just blown. And somehow like that return to South Carolina, like there was a bridge there that had happened back to Australia. And I just like, I couldn't believe that I had taken this animal for granted. And that really led to a series of questions in my life where I was like, how many more things am I taking for granted? And how many other things are people in other places taking for granted? And that led me to, to reaching out to my local chapter of the Nature Conservancy and saying like, hey, you know, like I want to photograph salamanders. That was the epicenter of salamander diversity in the world where I was living. There were very few photos of salamanders that were really good. I felt like there were more scientific sort of specimen kinds of photos, but not really photos that were inspiring. Um, and that led me um, over a series of years to working on a project called Meet Your Neighbors, which I launched in 2009 with a Scottish wildlife photographer named Neil Binvey. And the whole point of that project was to connect people to the wildlife in their own backyards. And so I thought of it as an international nature photography or biodiversity awareness project. We all, one of the, some of the tenets of Meet Your Neighbors is that everybody shoots in the same way. So you're shooting on this brightly lit white background in something called the field studio um, so that the, the context of the background is removed and all of the subjects, you can't tell if the subject's from South America or South Carolina. You just look at the species and you know, this is really beautiful. And we photographed everything in the wild. And it was around that time that I was like, I really want to recruit more people to be a part of Meet Your Neighbors. I, had, I did have a, quite a few photographers at that time in various parts of the world, in India and a couple in Europe and, and other parts of the world that were participating, but I wanted more. And so that... I think that was around, I guess, the summit that was in McAllen, Texas. And that's when I came to the Nampa Summit. Um, I ended up meeting so many people that I call dear friends now, like Crystal Slyer and Morgan Heim and uh, Neil Lozen from Days Edge Productions, who I made the Rusty Patch film with. I mean, it was a life-changing experience for me because at the time, even though there was the Internet and all these kinds of things, the conservation photography was um, something that I feel like was still, I don't mean this in any disrespect by this, but it was the old guard that was running, you know, the conservation photography world. And there was not a lot of access for younger photographers. And so I was able to connect with a group of people who were close to my age. And we formed a sort of a, a, a team, basically. And we worked on a lot of projects together. And Meet Your Neighbors really grew as a result of that. But it was also where I met my closest colleagues and friends. So it was a, it was definitely a life-changing experience for me. We hear that a lot about Nampa summits, you know, people, you know, connect with different, you know, whether it's networking or they find mentors or they find other people with similar interests and they start building projects together. But we do hear that a lot. Yeah, I think it's true. There's nothing that beats uh, face-to-face time, hanging out, talking about ideas and sort of thing. I was going to say the face-to-face part is what we've all missed here recently, and I can't wait to get back to a point where we can we can be there again. Absolutely, yeah. I feel I feel it's coming. I feel it's getting there. It's 
I feels good to be vaccinated. At least I can say that. At least I can start doing some travel again. Yeah, I'll talk to you after my second shot in a week and a half. <laughs> we'll see how I feel. Take a couple of days off or take it easy for a couple of days afterwards. I was yeah. pretty tired. The calendar is blocked. <laughs> Smart. All right. Anything else that you have, Clay? Anything else that you want to make sure we go over? In this or direct people to. If there are any links or any, any projects, people can find your work easily if they want to dig deeper into what we've what you've talked about today. Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of my work, um, I often say just Google my name and bees and lots of articles will come up. Um, but also you can go to my website, claybolt.com, to see lots of examples of my work. And I, w I would say, um, even though a lot of the things that we've talked about today are quite heavy, um, the thing that keeps me going is not the down, the, the depressing stuff, the hard stuff. It's because I love what I do and I love the subject so much. I spend much more time in wonderment and feeling awe-inspired by all the things that I'm seeing all the time around me every day that gives me fuel to continue to do this work day after day because conservation is not easy. Um, so I would say that, you know, for photographers who are aspiring to do conservation work, you know, give yourself a break. Don't feel bad about enjoying nature. Um, I feel like I fell into the trap when I first got started to just really uh, feeling the heaviness of it all the time. And even though it may seem like that now, it's I love what I do. I love I'm passionate about trying to help. Um, and I think that's something that just comes with time to realize that you can't save nature by yourself. You just contribute as much as that you as you can in your daily life and it's up to people around you and it's up to people that come after you to help continue to carry that torch. So give yourself a break, find things you enjoy and just work hard and, and you never know what you'd be able to accomplish. And I think what we can do as well is that we'll make sure that in the show notes for this episode, we'll include links to the iNaturalist program. We'll include links to Nampa's website, as well as to information about Philip Hyde grant that's a $2,500 grant that the Nampa Foundation gives out each year, and that'll open up later in this summer for the next round of applicants, if anybody's interested in that. Um, so we'll include all that information in there, as well as some info, you know, some links to your Instagram account, your website, and some photos that we'll get from you about some of your favorite, favorite bumblebee shots and other images. That would be absolutely great. And I just want to thank you all. It was really fun talking with you guys. And Really appreciate the opportunity to tell tell some um, information about these cool insects. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very interesting and very relevant. All right. Take care, you guys. So thank you for joining us today for the Nature Photographer Podcast. It's a joint production between Wild and Exposed and Nampa. And we'll hope you'll join us for the next episode. Um, we have two that come out each month as well as the additional episodes of Wild and Exposed that you can catch on a weekly basis. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.